Lord, we didn't come to go through the motions. Lord, tradition is not enough for us. Lord, we don't come here to repeat and pass on tradition. We've come here to know the Spirit of God, the one whom Jesus said He would send. So Lord, we expect you in this hour. Lord, we welcome your conviction. We welcome your encouragement. We cherish the joy of the Spirit that bubbles up within us. Have your way. You alone be glorified and exalted and receive all glory, adoration, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 1, Luke opens the book of Acts. Remember, Luke wrote Luke and Acts with these words. He says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Remember, we discussed that the word, the name Theophilus could be a, um, a royal figure who Luke wrote his accounts for. Or Theophilus, the name means one loved by God. And so Luke could be using a type of allegory, you know, calling the reader Theophilus, the one God loves. He said, the first account, or the book of Luke, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He gathered them together. He commanded them. All I want you to see is that Luke introduces the Acts, the second part of his work, by saying, in the first book, I told you all that Jesus began to do and teach before his resurrection. But in this book, Luke implies, I'll I'll tell you of what Jesus continued to do through his apostles by the power of the Spirit, that the apostles and the disciples are an extension of Jesus's ministry in the recorded in the gospels that the the apostles and the disciples they are filled with the holy spirit the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells within their rib cages and as they live and minister and teach they extend the ministry of Christ Jesus himself Christ Jesus is alive he's still at work these apostles disciples are apostles are they they're apostles they're ambassadors of his kingdom now John G. Lake, after doing some ministry in South Africa in 1915, he opened a a healing room in Spokane, Washington, a room where people could come and receive prayer for healing. Some 200 people per day would pass through Lake's healing rooms. Over time, thousands were claiming to be healed, and the healing rooms began to run testimonies in the newspaper of people who were healed to encourage others to come and receive prayer. Now, at the time, the Better Business Bureau, it was their, their task to investigate claims or, uh, or t- these kind of things that the, the newspaper ran. And so the Better Business Bureau, for, Bureau was notified that, that John G. Lake was running these testimonies and they decided they were going to investigate this ministry. Now, John G. Lake welcomed their investigation openly. He provided for them 20 individuals whose testimonies had been run in the newspaper, individuals who had cancer or other deadly ailments and who were totally restored by the power of the Spirit, which Jesus released, sent in the Acts narrative. John G. Lake asked the Better Business Bureau, he said, why don't you gather some lawyers, some judges, some physicians, gather them all together and create a panel. 
And he said, I'll get a hundred people who have been healed and they'll come before you, give their testimony. You can touch them, feel them, you can investigate. And then your panel can decide, can determine whether our healing ministry is legit or not. For the five years that Lake was in Spokane, Washington, in his healing rooms, it was reported statistically that Spokane was the healthiest city in America. Statistically, they had the least ailment. So the investigators, they began with the 20 individuals who John G. Lake first gave them. And those individuals testified of being on their deathbeds, plagued with disease, crippled with ailments. Again, this is 1920 and totally restored. As the Sunday approached where John G. Lake had organized this great meeting, a hundred people coming, he's kind of set up the, the meeting where the investigators can come and hear all the testimonies. The investigators from the Better Business Bureau called John G. Lake and told him that the meeting would not be necessary, that they had no intention of slowing his work any further. Two individuals from the investigation contacted, contacted Lake and said, you didn't tell us half of what has been taking place in our city in your healing rooms. They said, as we began to investigate, we realized that we didn't know the half of what the Spirit of God was doing through your ministry. Now, Lake was a man with shortcomings like ours, with failures like ours, but he was a man who came to believe that God had really endowed upon him the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He was a man who knew God in prayer, who stood in faith, and caused his city to come in awe and wonder as he extended the ministry of Christ Jesus himself through his own life, as he became a vessel for the spirit to work and move. Brokenness in Lake's life, no doubt about that. But when the Better Business Bureau comes to examine, they say, go about your business because we, we don't want to take any more of your time. And I'm asking you throughout this series to be consistent. If we truly believe that Jesus lives in us, the Spirit lives in us, if we truly believe that he has commissioned us, commanded us to go into all the world, preaching the gospel to the four corners of the earth, if we really believe that Jesus said, it would be better for you that I go because I'll send the helper, if we really believe that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives within me, if we really believe that Christ has called us, set our feet upon a rock, filled us with the precious, sweet Holy Ghost, and dismissed us to carry the gospel to the four corners of the earth. I'm asking us to consistently live that way. The apostles did. The early church did. And our generation should, could sure use a good Holy Ghost shakedown, okay? Let's read from Acts chapter 3. We'll start in verse 11. We'll read through 26. And I'll try to bear this idea out as we read. While he clung to Peter and John. Remember he is the, the cripple laid at the gate called Beautiful who was healed in the chapter, uh, in the verses in the chapter before. Remember he was crippled from birth. Peter and John tell him, look at us, silver or gold we have not, but we do have in the name of Jesus we give to you. Stand up. And a crippled man who has not walked a day in his life jumps to his feet, runs into the temple to worship in joy and in gladness. While he clung to Peter and John, while that crippled man now healed clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us 
as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, he made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who had spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So here in Acts chapter 3, we again find a miracle, a sign, a wonder, a crippled man now standing to walk. And the crowd gathers around Peter and John to hear what they have to say. They run to Peter and John, flock to them. And Peter begins now his second sermon found in Acts. And he opens with a statement. Why do you marvel at this? Why do you marvel at this? Everyone knew that this man had been disabled from birth. Everyone knew that he had sat at that gate for years. Now he's up on his feet, running and jumping, and Peter opens with, Why in the world would you marvel? The scripture says the people were utterly astounded. That Greek means full of wonder, full of amazement. Now consider that it's only been a matter of months since the resurrection of Jesus. They knew of Jesus' resurrection. They knew of his miracle ministry. They knew that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the grave for four days. They knew that Jesus had healed blind eyes. They knew that Jesus had cleansed ten leopards. They they knew that Jesus had given, given sight and hearing, caused the mute to speak. They knew that Jesus had turned water into wine. For three years, they've witnessed the miraculous ministry, the wonderfully and awfully miraculous ministry of Jesus. And now when Peter and John heal a lame man, they they come utterly astounded. And Peter says, why do you stare at us with amazement as if you have not witnessed for three years now the great power of Messiah Jesus who walked amongst you? Now you marvel at this as if this is the first time you've ever seen A lame man walk? As if this kind of miracle is wildly uncommon? As they flock, there are some sincere, others just curious. They're excited. And Peter reminds them that Jesus did thousands of miracles like this just months ago. 
John concludes his gospel by saying this, if we were to record all that Jesus did, all the books in the world would not be able to hold those words. Why would you marvel? Then he says, and why do you stare at us as though it were by our own piety or power that this man is healed? You stare at us as though we are somehow more holy or more pious or more powerful than the rest. You stare at us as if we cause this man to walk. You stare at us as if we are special or super spiritual. Why do you stare at us? We do not possess within us the power to make this man whole within our own Strength. We don't carry the supernatural ability because of our unique holiness or nearness to God. Please don't tell the Catholics this or they'll quit praying to saints. That was kind of a joke, but kind of serious. Peter says we're not special. We're not holier than the rest. We are not all powerful. Do not praise us. Do not exalt us now. Paul and Barnabas will face the same kind of thing. It's actually a very similar story. A man crippled from birth sat and listened to Paul preach. The scripture says in Acts 14, Paul, seeing that he had faith to be well, commanded the man to stand up. He too began to leap. And the crowd immediately declared Paul and Barnabas gods. Do you remember this? Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because Paul did all the talking. And they prepared to worship. They prepared a sacrifice to worship Paul and Barnabas. Realizing what was happening, Paul and Barnabas, they tore their robes, the scripture says, and they shouted, why are you doing this? We are just men like you. Peter says to this crowd now, we reject your adoration. Many during this time period would perform some kind of shaman rituals to bring healing to an individual, and there would be a payment for it. They would receive money. Remember, Peter said, silver or gold, we have not. We are not men who heal for income. We don't want your money. We don't want your praise. Stop ooing and aahing over young John here. This miracle was not by our own piety, nor was it by our own power. And it is not intended to glorify us. It was not intended to bring adoration and praise our way. And we still need to learn this lesson. We need to be sure, very sure that we learn this lesson. When God moves by the power of his spirit, it is never to exalt a man. And we do not worship men. And we are not building a personality cult following. I'm not asking for your praise and adoration. Cut me down, God, if I ever stand here and expect your ooing and aahing. We are not worshipers of men. When God comes in power and the Holy Spirit moves, it is to exalt one being, one man. It is to exalt the name of Jesus only. In the same sense, when God begins to use us, God puts his hand on you and uses you in power, you be sure that you reject praise. You be sure that you don't lust after men's adoration. Peter says, no, it wasn't us. His is the kingdom, and his is the power, and his is the glory forever. For all eternity, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer, for all eternity, Jesus alone will receive glory forever. His is the kingdom, and his is the power, and his is the glory. It does not belong to any man or any idol. For eternity, 
There will be no end to the exaltation of the beautiful name of Jesus. He is due worship forever, Peter says. Now, and so Peter launches into this discourse, primarily answering the question, who is it that healed this man? It is not us, Peter says. Now, remember our setting. Peter and John were on their way to the temple. They're in Jerusalem, on their way to the temple to pray. It's the peak time of worship for the day. It's the last sacrifice time of the day, 3 p.m. It's a thoroughly Jewish audience who's come to partake of the sacrifice and worship. And now they've created this great commotion. There's a healed man clinging to them, and they have a crowd of people staring, ooing and aahing at Peter and John. And John, or Peter answers the question, who healed this man in verse 16? Peter said this, and his name, whose name? By faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says this man is healed in Jesus' name. Through faith in Jesus' name. And Jesus gave him perfect health before you all. Why do you marvel as if Jesus has not been doing this now for years? It wasn't us. This man was healed by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. The ministry of Messiah is still taking place through us, his servants. He's still working. He's still healing. He's still saving. He's still redeeming. He is not dead in a grave. His ministry is not finished. This man was not healed by our own power or piety. He is healed in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit in order to carry on the ministry of Christ Jesus, the Messiah. It was for Jesus, by Jesus, and he alone receives glory. Jesus is alive. His gospel is true. And Peter says, and though you murdered him, the author of life... God raised him from the dead, and you've just witnessed that he is still alive. Now, throughout the sermon here, Peter is using biblical titles, Old Testament titles of Messiah. He's showing that the prophets said that the Messiah would suffer. He wants them to see that Jesus is the one long awaited for. He refers to Jesus as the righteous one. The scripture the prophets will call the Messiah the righteous branch, the righteous room. He refers to Jesus as the holy one. Remember, he said, Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet after him to come. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 through 19 reads this. This is the the voice of the Lord coming through Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, whoever will not listen to the words of the prophet, that those individuals shall be judged. So Peter says, Moses told you that there would be a prophet coming, like himself. And then Peter says, Christ is that prophet He is the one that Samuel prophesied. Samuel is the next great prophet after Moses. And so when he says from Samuel on, he means from Samuel until Malachi, Christ Jesus was prophesied. He's the offspring of Abraham, the offspring, the singular offspring by which the nations of the earth shall be blessed, drawing them to the multiple 
promises given to Abraham throughout Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 12. He says, this was the servant prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 15. Isaiah prophesied, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. The servant of Yahweh's appearance would be so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The servant of Yahweh would be so crushed that he wouldn't even look like a human anymore. He would be so marred that he would be unrecognizable. And by that crushing and marring, he would sprinkle the nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And obviously, this passage leads into Isaiah chapter 53, when he would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, when the chastisement that we deserved would be placed upon him so that we may be healed. So Peter says here, the servant has come. Who healed the crippled man, they ask? The one Moses said would come. The one Samuel and the others would prophesy of. The servant who Isaiah told you would be crushed beyond human resemblance. And by that crushing would sprinkle the nations. Who healed this man before your eyes? The Messiah who you murdered, the very author of life who God raised from the dead. In this moment of awe and wonder, Peter does not raise his head in pride but rather he launches into a thoroughly biblical Old Testament exposition of the Messiah to come. And he says, who healed this man today? It was not us. It was not our power. It was not our piety. It was the same man who walked the earth for three years, healing, raising the dead, cleansing the leper. He's the one the scriptures prophesied, and today he is alive. And now Peter says, repent. Again, the R word that the modern church hates, repent. He reminds them that Moses prophesied that all who rejected the prophet to come would be judged. All who reject Jesus Messiah will experience judgment. In verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Remember, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Acted in ignorance in the sense that they didn't understand all that was taking place. Still guilty under Mosaic law, but there's, uh, you're, you're judged differently when, you're, when you act without full understanding. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. So again, hold the full narrative in picture. They heal a sick man in the name of Jesus. They say, it wasn't us. It was the same Jesus you crucified. His power lives through us. Our lives are now an expression of his ministry. He's filled us with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost expresses his sovereign power, his redemptive work. He expresses his ministry through our lives. And then they say, now you've witnessed again his power. Repent, turn that your sins may be forgiven and that you may experience times of refreshing 
from the Holy Spirit. By God, we need times of refreshing from the Holy Spirit. Maybe, just maybe, what we need to do is repent. I don't know. I could be a little bit confused there, but... He's beckoning the hearers, beckoning this crowd who's standing in awe at the healing they've just witnessed. Have your sins been washed, he says. Have you known real refreshment from the Spirit of God? Have you, have you drank from rivers of living water? You live dry, Peter says. Come be refreshed. Then he says, and heaven has received him until the time in which he is to come. Verse 21 whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter says, who healed him? Jesus, the one you crucified, who was prophesied that he would suffer for your forgiveness of sins. Repent, have your sins forgiven, and receive refreshment from the Holy Spirit. Lest you be judged, because he is coming quickly. What does Peter say when he has the crowd's attention? He gives the full gospel, man. Come be cleansed, be refreshed by the Spirit, or you shall be judged, for Jesus is coming quickly. What is the message of the church? Come receive washing from the blood of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father lest they come through him. All those who deny Jesus will be denied on the last day, and Jesus is returning swiftly. Is that the message we preach? And is this the power that we know? Have we come to worship men or have we come to know the glory of the risen Messiah? Was that a dog? (laughs) People from across the street walk their dogs over here all week long. Sometimes they don't pick up after themselves either, so I'm about to start writing fines. <laughs> I want you to see the cohesiveness of the apostles' lives, their testimony, and their ministry that it was about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to the forgiveness of sins so that refreshment could come from the Holy Spirit, that they were not too timid to say, if you deny him, you will be denied, church. They were not too timid to say that all those who reject Messiah will be rejected. They were not too timid to proclaim the coming of Jesus, the return of Christ. It was a cohesive message. It was birthed from a cohesive worldview that was intended to carry the kingdom work on through their own lives. Seth, come for me. Someone from worship team, come. If you play a wrong note, we're going to drop you in the water. We're going to hit a button and it's going to open up. Again, if you could hold the whole narrative in your mind, I I just want you to ask the questions. How did the apostles live? That's what we're trying to ask, right? How did they live? What did they believe? What did they expect when they walked out? 
You know, when they saw a sick man, what did they expect to happen? And what did they preach when they had the crowd's attention? What did they believe about the person of the Spirit? A.W. Tozer said in a, in a little book, the name of which has left my mind, um, that revival as a concept, the, the term is often used by sociologists or those who study religion. Um, the term revival is used to, um, to speak of any time in any religion when the religion sees a boom. And so they'll speak of revival in Islam or in Eastern religions. And every religion throughout the world has these ebbs and flows and ups and downs. And so there are times where they would say that Islam is having a revival, having a boom. And, and A.W. Tozer pointed out that, that even the church at times has booms. Things become popular and there are trends in the church. And the church may seem to be thriving at times more so than others. And, and statistically, from, from a, just a, a view of trying to examine, um, people would call that a revival. The church is growing. It seems to be flourishing. Revival. A.W. Tozer points out that when the church booms without the presence of the Holy Ghost actually working and transforming lives. When the church booms, for instance, the church boomed with liberal Christianity in the 70s and 80s, the liberal mainline churches were growing, but they weren't growing by a move of the Spirit. They were growing because they were trending. When those churches grow and boom outside of the manifest presence of God and His glory, that booming is actually a negative thing that will be a detriment to the generations to come. And so he says that revival, or what we're after, is not just a booming of energy and a booming of momentum. We're not just after more people in the room so that we feel successful. What we're after is an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that transforms lives and heals hearts, that restores and redeems. And Tozer went on to say that fundamentalism had a rise in response to the liberal... um, doctrines, the getting away from the authority of scripture. And so fundamentalism arose and it was quite an organic move and it began to boom. And he said, but there was a detriment in fundamentalism in, in a response to liberal theology, which said that the scripture is not an errant or inspired and, and our minds really become God. In response, fundamentalists said, no, scripture is fully an errant and fully authoritative. And so they studied the doctrine and they communicated the doctrine and it became about scholars and intellects studying and meticulously digging through doctrine. And they got to the place in fundamentalism where believing things about the gospel was the same as having an experience with the Holy Spirit in the gospel. And the church came to the place when to believe in Christ in an intellectual sense, we we equated that as the same thing as having an experience with Christ, which Paul had. In fundamentalism, we began to, to equate intellectual information with experience and personal knowledge with the Holy Ghost. Now, what we want 
I want you to hear me. What we want is a cohesive worldview and a cohesive understanding of the gospel. We want to know intellectually the, the triune God of the universe. We want to know the three persons of the triune Godhead and how they function. We want to believe the Trinity as a historic Christian doctrine, but we don't want to just know it intellectually. We want to experience the times of refreshing that come by the power of the Holy Ghost, which the apostles came to know and experience. We don't just want a revival of information and a revival of pure doctrine, although we do want that. We want the doctrine and then the experience which the doctrine tells us we should have. And that, my friend, is a cohesive understanding of Scripture and a cohesive worldview. So it's not enough to confess, I believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then to deny the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the entirety of your life. To confess that you believe and know the Holy Ghost, and then to work that out in a cohesive way is to confess it, and then live your life expecting to encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. To live your life expecting God to heal. To live your life expecting God to answer your prayers. To live your life expecting... God to communicate information to you that you would not know otherwise. To live your life expecting to know the Spirit in the same ways that the apostles knew the Spirit. And that is cohesive. And that the church in the West has not had in decades. That's all. That's all I wanted to say. So the way I want to close today is if you go ahead and stand to your feet, we'll, we'll open up the altars. Altar team, if you guys want to come get in place, I want to ask you this morning whether or not you view your life as an extension of Jesus' ministry. Do you expect Jesus to continue touching the nations and healing the sick and saving sinners through you? Do you, do you really believe that the same spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead lives within me and that Christ has commissioned me for a purpose and a call? Let me say one more thing. In an anti-supernatural, materialistic worldview that our universities are educating our children with, in a worldview where we all have come about through a random process of events and an evolutionary theory, and we all are just random beings bumping around and hitting each other, in that worldview, life has no purpose. No, life in that worldview is at best about experiencing some sort of peace, having some sort of happiness. God, I'm feeling chatty this morning. Did you know that when the founders said that you have the right to pursue life and happiness, that the word happiness in their day did not mean like a giddy joy. The word happiness in their day meant to, to experience the fulfillment that one experiences when they come under the purposes and plans of God. They did not say you have the right to pursue giddiness. They said, you have the right to pursue fulfillment that comes through knowing that God is using you, that God has called you, and that you will heal here on the last day. Well done, good and faithful servant. In a biblical worldview, you were knit together in your mother's womb with a purpose. In a biblical worldview, you have you not been brought here by a random process of events. You did not move to this region or be, be born in this region just because you like the beach. Okay? In a biblical worldview, the sovereign God of the universe planted you here with a purpose. And you are either fulfilling it or you are not fulfilling it. And the purpose, the pursuit of happiness, 
is that Christ Jesus' ministry would continue to flourish through your own life, that you would die as you come to the cross and live through the person of Jesus himself. In our worldview, you have a work, you have a call, you have a commission. In our worldview, the spirit is alive and active, ready to move. And so what I want to do today as we close is I want to just open the altars up and all I want to pray this morning that I want to pray or or someone may come out and lead us in a different way. What I want to pray this morning is that God would, would cause the kingdom of Jesus to come through our lives, that the kingdom work would continue through our hands, that God would give us faith to pray for the sick, give us faith to share our testimonies, that God would give us boldness by the very spirit to to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. So if you would just open your hands this morning, I'm gonna pray for a moment. When I conclude praying, if if you'd like to come to the altar and ask for God to put his hand on you again, we're gonna open the altars up for that. So Jesus, we just confess this morning that we really believe that your blood has washed us from all iniquity. Lord, we confess this morning that we don't just believe in the Trinity as a doctrine, but we believe it experientially, that the Spirit has been sent by the Son to speak, to breathe, to move. And Lord, we ask this morning that the kingdom of God would come through our lives. The kingdom ministry, the kingdom work that was initiated by the coming of your son and carried forth by the releasing of the apostles. We ask for that same work to be manifested through our lives. Come on, Jesus, use us, we pray. Use us, Lord. Lord, we want your glory to be magnified in this region, Lord. Don't let people uh, descend to hell on our watch, Lord draw sinners. You said no man comes unless the spirit draws them. Draw them in our day, Lord, and make us vessels worthy. Make us vessels useful. If you would, congregation, just pray for a moment. Use me, God. Use me, God. Put that on your lips this morning. Use me, God. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. So if that word stung this morning, if you felt like, you know, I really need to pray that, I want to ask you to come to the altars as the worship team leads us for just a moment. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh and to commission you afresh to reach this region for the gospel. So if you would come as Seth leads us, please don't be timid.
Well, we just wanted to thank you for worshiping with us. Um, and we are um, expectant as a church for what God is doing here. Um, and we just thank you for, for being here. We pray that um, God is um, just with you as you leave this um, building, that you feel the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit um, and his goodness. And so we do want to let you know that the altar is going to stay open. So if um, you feel at all, um, anything that you want to come and deal with, um, the worship team is going to stay up here. But we um, pray that you have an amazing week. God bless you. We love you guys. And you're officially dismissed. Yeah.